This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. U.S. House passing a resolution on a party-line vote to remove Congresswoman Ilan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, from the Foreign Affairs Committee. The reason given, passed comments by her that some members have labeled anti-Semitic. Congresswoman Omar responding, I am here to stay and I am here to be a voice against harms around the world and advocate for a better world. The day after President Joe Biden met House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to discuss raising the nation's debt limit and the Republicans wanting to attach spending reductions, we'll hear from the Speaker and the White House about what is next in these talks. Just a couple of months to go into a possible default on the debt. Former President Bill Clinton joining President Joe Biden at the White House to mark the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Family and Medical Leave Act, which allows unpaid time off from a job for an illness or childbirth or to care for a sick family member, and the two pushing for paid family leave. President Biden meeting members of the Congressional Black Caucus to talk about police reform legislation is following the death of Tyree Nichols after a traffic stop in Memphis, Tennessee. Former police officers now charged with second-degree murder. And we'll talk about the prospects for a bipartisan deal on police reform with Washington Post reporter Leon Caldwell. And the annual National Prayer Breakfast bringing together Republicans and Democrats. USA Today reports the Republican-led House Thursday voted to remove Minnesota Democratic Congresswoman Ilan Omar from the House Foreign Affairs Committee over previous comments she made about Israel that members of both parties viewed as anti-Semitic. Republican leaders have threatened to take action against Congresswoman Omar over a number of controversial statements she'd made since she came to Capitol Hill four years ago. A prominent progressive in Congress... Congressman Omar, who is Muslim, has been a fierce critic of Israel's treatment of Palestinians and routinely questions U.S. aid to the Middle East ally. That reporting from USA Today. Here's some of the debate on the House floor before the vote on the resolution. Speaking in favor, Congressman Michael Lawler, Republican from New York. Israel's continued existence as a beacon of liberty, democracy, and peace in the Middle East serves as a model for other nations in the region and is something we should be celebrating, not demeaning. Comments made by members of this body about support for Israel being all about the Benjamins, or that the state of Israel is engaging in apartheid, are appalling, wrong, and disqualifying. Additionally, those who dismiss 9-11 as some people who did something, are you kidding me? It was a terrorist attack. It wasn't some people doing something. Or to equate the United States and Israel, both democratic nations, to the Taliban and Hamas, and those who promote the anti-Semitic BDS movement, you're damn right they deserve to be held accountable. As a member that represents a district that suffered greatly due to 9-11, and still has constituents grappling with the effects of that horrific, tragic day, 
dying of 9-11 health-related uh, situation. I find those remarks jarring and alarming and insulting. To be clear, the representative can say whatever the heck she wants, but we don't have to accept it or embrace it. Individuals who hold such hateful views should rightly be barred from that type of committee. We cannot let the poisonous ideology of anti-Semitism permeate into policy decisions that impact the lives of millions of Jews around the world. And I will stand up to anti-Semitism and defend Israel's right to exist and the right of Jews everywhere to practice their faith peacefully and safely. This is not about silencing anyone. Congressman Michael Lawler, Republican from New York, today on the House floor, debating a resolution that would remove Congresswoman Ilan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, from the Foreign Affairs Committee. Closing the debate on the Democratic side, Congressman Omar, who said this is all about who can be an American. What is the work of the Foreign Affairs Committee? It is not to co-sign the stated foreign policy of whatever administration is in power. It's about oversight. It's to critique and to advocate for a better path forward. But most importantly, it is to make the myth that American foreign policy is intrinsically moral a reality. So I will continue to speak up because representation matters. I will continue to speak up for little kids who wonder who's speaking up for them. I will continue to speak up for families around the world who are seeking justice. Whether they are displaced in refugee camps or they are hiding under their beds somewhere like I was, waiting for the bullets to stop. Because this child survivor of war would have wanted that. The nine-year-old me would be disappointed if I didn't talk about the victims of conflict, those that are experiencing unjust wars, atrocities, ethnic cleansing, occupation, or displacement like I did. They are looking to the international community and the United States, asking for help. They look to us because the international community and the United States profess the values of protecting human rights and upholding international law. So we owe it to them not to make this a myth, but a reality. I didn't come to Congress to be silent. I came to Congress to be their voice. And my leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. My voice will get louder and stronger, and my leadership will be celebrated around the world as it has been. So take your vote or not, I am here to stay, and I am here to be a voice against harms around the world and advocate for a better world. I yield back. Congresswoman Ilan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota today on the House floor, referring to her time when she was born in Somalia. This resolution to remove her from the Foreign Affairs Committee passed on a party-line vote, 218 to 211. Republicans voting yes, Democrats voting no. There was one member who voted present, Republican David Joyce of Ohio. 
New York Times writes that this resolution settled a partisan score that had been festering since 2021, when the House, then controlled by Democrats, stripped Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia and Paul Gosar of Arizona of their committee assignments for social media posts in which they endorsed violence against Democrats. Also, this story today from The Hill, the Senate minority leader, Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, has pulled Senator Rick Scott, Republican from Florida, who tried to oust him as the Senate's top Republican in a bruising leadership race, off the powerful Commerce Committee. Senator McConnell also removed Senator Mike Lee, Republican from Utah, who supported Senator Scott's bid to replace Senator McConnell as leader from the Commerce Panel. The GOP leader insisted last year that he didn't take the attempt to end his leadership reign personally, but the latest move sends a clear message to conservatives that challenging Senator McConnell's leadership carries a cost. That from The Hill. Now to the national debt limit, $31.4 trillion. The Treasury Department says the nation has already reached that, and the limit needs to be raised through a law passed by Congress, signed by the president, by approximately June to avoid a default. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, asked today about yesterday's meeting he had with President Joe Biden about the debt limit and the House Republicans' request to attach spending cuts and the president's position that those two issues must remain separate. You, the White House, said that the president's open to a talking about the debt ceiling in a separate discussion about ways to control spending. I mean, do you, what do you think about when you hear that, that they kind of want to separate those two? Is what they Which, whichever way they want to talk about it, I'm very clear. We will not pass a clean debt ceiling here without some form of spending reform. So there'll never be a clean one. I don't know how they want to say it. That's fine. But at the end of the day, we're going to get spending reforms. I, I believe you have to lift the debt ceiling. But you do not lift the debt ceiling without changing your behavior. So it's got to be both. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy with reporters in the U.S. Capitol building. They also asked him when the next meeting might be between him and the president on the debt limit. We've been talking about the meeting with the president again following these discussions. Do you have a timeline for your next meeting with him? And realistically, what are the next steps? Are you going to bring some members perhaps to meet with him at the White House? Are you bringing some Democrats as well. What's the next step in the process? Okay, the next step is very clear. Uh, we left it that he'll give me a call in a couple days to set up the next meeting. Not who would come, not any of that. Today I got to see him at the prayer conference, uh, prayer breakfast. He sat next to me and he said, very good, very good meeting. I thought his comments up at the prayer breakfast, that we're going to treat people with respect and he followed to me and I, I have respect for the president and I, and I want to be very responsible with how we deal with it. I was very clear with the president, we should not wait five months. Let's not put America through turmoil, right? I mean, I looked at the latest polling, the greatest fear people have is government. They want their government to actually work. We have a government that's designed. We have a government that the American public decided to have a check and balance, where Republicans are in charge of the House, Democrats in the Senate, he has the presidency. So I believe the most sensible way to do this is we sit down together and we start talking. Yesterday, I know before he said he wouldn't negotiate, but yesterday was a very nice conversation for more than an hour. It didn't mean we agreed, but we we staked out different positions. And I think at the end of the conversation between both of us, we thought, you know what? This is worthwhile to continue. We're going to continue it. So he's going to come back to me. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy speaking with reporters on Capitol Hill. At the White House, the press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, asked about Speaker McCarthy's position that a so-called clean debt limit increase without any spending cuts or other deficit reduction provisions 
will not pass the House of Representatives. There was a fair amount of optimism on both sides coming out of that meeting yesterday, but the speaker has now said to reporters again that there will be no clean debt ceiling hike. So why the cause for optimism? <laughs> well, look, the cause for optimism is because you heard it from the speaker himself. It was a good discussion. It was going to be a continuing conversation that they are going to have. Uh, and there are real uh, real discussions to continue as it relates to the, uh, to, uh, to the American people. When you look at uh, the deficit more broadly and how uh, we, we need to lower, continue to lower the deficit and what the president has done the last two years. You've heard me talk about that uh, many times from the podium. And we have said, we have said very loud and clear to the speaker if he has any ideas on how to work together on that, we're willing to listen and work in good faith. But look, as it relates, as I've always said, when it comes to uh, lifting uh, the debt ceiling, that is a completely separate issue. And that has not changed. You saw that from our readout yesterday. You've heard this from me. You heard it from the president. You've heard it from Brian Deese and others uh, in this administration that, uh, that we need to do that without conditions. The debt ceiling needs to be lifted without conditions. And, uh, and so we still stand by that. That has not changed. We believe, we truly believe it is a constitutional duty of Congress, Republican, Democrats, and independents to get that done, as we have seen this done 78 times before since 1960. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre during her briefing in the White House briefing room. Wall Street today, the Dow down 39, NASDAQ up 384, S&P up 60. Back to the U.S. House of Representatives today, they passed a resolution that denounces what the resolution calls the horrors of socialism. Also declares the United States, quote, is founded on the belief in the sanctity of the individual to which the collectivist system of socialism in all of its forms is fundamentally and necessarily opposed. Republican Congresswoman Young Kim of California spoke on the floor before she voted yes. If you want to see the difference between socialism and freedom, take a look at North Korea at night versus South Korea. As an immigrant who grew up in South Korea during the aftermath of the Korean War, I know firsthand the horror, the destruction that socialism has brought to millions of families in the Korean Peninsula under the evil regime of Kim Dynasty, from Kim Il-sung to Kim Jong-il to now Kim Jong-un. Socialism divided my family and friends between North and South. My mother-in-law, for example, she crossed over DMZ and back multiple times to rescue loved ones from the tyrannical North Korean regime and tens of thousands of war-torn families remain separated to this day. Meanwhile, famines and the daily threats of a nuclear war in East Asia persist. Although I was just a young girl, I remember the hope embodied by those brave soldiers who defended the freedoms of a country they never knew and a people they never met. It is because of them that I stand before you today as one of the first Korean-American women to serve in Congress. The United States must continue to stand as a beacon of freedom, hope, and opportunity for the world. I urge my colleagues from both sides of the aisle to join us to say no to socialism, and I yield back. Republican Congresswoman Young Kim of California on the House floor. Opposing the resolution, Congressman Gregory Meeks, Democrat from New York. 
I do not take this issue lightly. I do, however, take issue with how this resolution has been presented. Of course we oppose the violence inflicted upon people under the rule of communist and dictatorial governments. But this resolution is less about their plight and more of a political stunt. Make no mistake about it. I am a proud capitalist, and I always will be. But ideas like affordable health care, affordable housing, and paid family leave are not radical socialist policies. Some of our closest allies in Europe and around the world participate in the free market and help their citizens meet their most basic needs. And that's what we've been sent here to do, to consider, debate, and ultimately pass legislation that will help the American people. So I ask my Republican colleagues, what is your agenda? Is it the 30% sales tax? Is it the cuts to Medicare and Medicaid? Is it the cuts to Social Security or eliminating access to reproductive care? What's your plan? Do we give people access so they can participate the in the capitalist society, expired. or do we just cut them so we can only limit it the opportunity to participate in a capitalist society? Gentleman I yield time. back the balance of my time. Congressman Gregory Meeks, Democrat from New York, today on the House floor. The House passed this resolution denouncing the horrors of socialism, as the resolution calls it, by a vote of 328 to 86, with 14 voting present. Voting yes, 219 Republicans and 109 Democrats. Voting no, 86 Democrats. And voting present, 14 Democrats. This is a concurrent resolution, so it now goes to the Senate, but if it passes there, it would not go to President Biden to be signed or vetoed. President Biden and Vice President Harris welcoming former President Bill Clinton to the White House today for the 30th anniversary of the Family and Medical Leave Act, a law that guarantees many workers up to 12 weeks off unpaid to recover from a major illness or childbirth or to take care of sick family members. Bill Clinton signed it into law as president February 5th, 1993, just a couple of weeks after taking office. Associated Press writing that President Biden championed but failed to win support for paid leave for workers in 2021. And on Thursday, he signed a memorandum that calls on heads of federal agencies to support access to unpaid family and medical leave for federal workers in their first year on the job. Workers aren't entitled to unpaid leave under the law until they've been employed for a year. Also, the president directing the Office of Personal Management to provide recommendations on developing policies so workers can get paid and unpaid leave to seek safety or recover from domestic violence, dating violence, sexual assault, or stalking. Such situations are not covered by the family leave law. That from Associated Press. Here's from President Bill Clinton talking about the law, and he says the people still bring it up to him today. First time I ever got on an airplane after I left the Oval Office. Boy, what a bummer. (laughs) Somebody said, when do you really know you're not president anymore? They don't play a song when you walk in a room. And you're back on commercial air travel. So I'm taking the shuttle from New York to Washington. And this really uh, compelling flight attendant with a very intense stare looked at me and she said, may I talk to you? And I said, sure. She said, you know, my husband loves you. He's a jazz musician and he teaches music in school. So he was always for you. She said, but I really didn't care about you one way or the other. (laughs) 
until the Family Medical Leave Act. She said, I have, I have a sister, and we had the misfortune that both our parents were dying at once, one with cancer, one with advanced Alzheimer's. There's no way we could support them with care except because of the Family and Medical Leave Act. And I just wanted to tell you this. She said, I've heard all these politicians give speeches about family values. She said, I know how your families, how your parents die is an important family value. It was breathtaking. I never get on a shuttle after 20 years that I don't think about that woman. Former President Bill Clinton today at the White House. He also called for passing paid family and medical leave, as did President Biden. The legislation we celebrate today was an incredibly important step, but a first step. In the United States, still one of our only countries in the world that doesn't guarantee paid leave. One of the only countries in the world that doesn't... Look, as a result, 94% of our lowest wage workers, mostly women and workers of color, have no paid family leave at all, 94%. Meaning you can only take time to care for your loved one if you can afford to give up your salary. I remain committed to changing that and bringing the line with every single other major economy in the world by passing a national program of paid leave and medical leave. And by the way, American workers deserve paid sick days as well. Paid sick days. Look, I've called on Congress to act, and I'll continue fighting, as I know all of you will as well. No American should ever choose to have to choose between a paycheck and take care of a family member or taking care of themselves. President Biden at the White House today, 30th anniversary of the Family and Medical Leave Act. More from the Associated Press story, about 44 percent of workers are not eligible for FMLA-supported leave because they work for small employers exempt from the law, do not work enough hours, or have not worked for their employer long enough to be eligible, or both, according to the National Partnership for Women and Families, a group advocating for updating the law. Nearly 15 million workers used FMLA in 2022, according to the group. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, introducing a bill today that would prevent the federal government from banning gas stoves or regulating them in a way that would increase the average price of them. NBC News reports the proposal is a direct response to a top official at the Consumer Product Safety Commission who ignited a fiery debate last month by floating the possibility that new gas stoves could be banned over concerns that pollutants from burning gas indoors could increase health risks, including childhood asthma. That's from NBC. Senator Manchin speaking today at the start of a hearing of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, which he chairs. Gas stoves have been in the news lately, and I've come out strongly against the Consumer Product Safety Commission pursuing any ban of gas stoves. In fact, I'm introducing legislation today with Senator Cruz that would ensure that they don't. And separately, sending a letter to the commission with Senator Langford seeking clarification about the commission's sudden desire to conduct an RFI on gas stoves. Yesterday, DOE published its first ever efficiency standard for cooktops, including gas stoves. Now, I've always been a proponent of energy efficiency, 
but the draft rule proposes efficiency levels that DOE says at the highest level up to 96% of gas stoves don't currently meet. I don't like where I think they're going with this, and I tell you one thing, they're not taking my gas stove out, and my wife and I would both be upset. Now, I know DOE is required to write a rule on stovetop efficiencies, and that is the beginning of this process, not a final rule. But in light of a broader concerns about the administration looking to find ways, and it truly is an indication, looking to find ways to push out natural gas, which basically the rest of the world wish they had an abundant supply that we do to have this transition that will go on in our energy markets, uh, doesn't make any sense at all. It really doesn't. But in light, uh, and I've said before, if the federal government doesn't have any business telling American families how to cook their dinner, if there's technology down the road, and as we transition into the new technology, that's fine. But basically, retrofitting or removing stoves that people have had for years is not going to happen. I don't think it will happen in any of our states. And I would be surprised for senators to, to be supporting that move. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, chair of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, at a hearing on energy program spending, not specifically gas stoves, but he took the opportunity to mention this at the start of today's hearing. He mentioned Senator Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, the bill's co-sponsor. Senator Cruz is a new ranking member of the Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee. The U.S. Energy Information Administration says almost 40 percent of American homes use gas stoves. Washington Today continues in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the free C-SPAN Now mobile app. A few more headlines. Arkansas's new governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, will be giving the Republican response to President Biden's State of the Union address next Tuesday. She is also a former White House press secretary and a former President Trump. And Congressman Juan Sisomani, Republican from Arizona, will be giving the Republican response in Spanish. Announcements today from the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. White House National Economic Council Director Brian Deese will officially leave the White House later this month in what a Yahoo Finance article calls a long-awaited departure. President Biden in a statement saying Brian's work was critical to the passage of the most significant economic agenda in generations, and Brian has a unique ability to translate complex policy challenges into concrete actions that improve the lives of American people. And Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says he doesn't plan to leave his cabinet position in the Biden administration. This after his name was floated for a possible run, an open seat for the Senate in Michigan. He told Punchbowl News today in an interview that C-SPAN covered, I love this job and I feel like we're right in the middle of the action. But he did say that under the job description, he serves at the pleasure of the president. President Biden meeting today with members of the Congressional Black Caucus talking about police reform. The Washington Post reports the Oval Office meeting comes a day after the funeral of Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man who died after being beaten by police in Memphis. Leading black lawmakers are not optimistic that a 
bill will reach President Biden's desk in the new Congress, but they plan to urge him to make the case for reform in his upcoming State of the Union address. We'll speak with a Washington Post reporter in a couple of minutes, but first here is President Biden with the CBC members in the Oval Office. Well, folks, I want to thank the uh, CBC uh, uh, for coming down, the leaders to come down to the White House. We've got a lot to talk about. I want to congratulate uh, Congressman Horsford on his election to this body. And uh, he got elected early on in spite of the fact that I was formed. But uh, anyway, but, uh, congratulations. And, uh, and we want to talk about the progress we made together and the investments we made in the African-American community and black community from everything from uh, HBCUs to uh, to jobs to uh, health care and a range of other things. But, and state the obvious, everybody knows that, uh, that Tyree was uh, buried, uh, just laid to rest. Vice President went to the funeral. I spent time on the telephone with his mom and his stepfather. And, uh, you know, uh, my hope is this dark memory spurs some action that we've all been fighting for. And uh, although you just got to keep at it, I listened to uh, uh, Al Sharpton's eulogy, which I thought was first rate. And uh, we got to stay at it as long as it takes. Um, the House passed police reform back in 2021 uh, when the Democrats controlled the House. Um, and it passed the George Floyd Act. And Corey, you work like hell, like heck in the Senate. Came close, but, uh, you know, and uh, but it's uh, what we did. I was able to through executive order, make some significant changes at the federal level, which I want to share with you all, not necessarily take the time today, but to go through the implementation of each of the initiatives we put forward and the absolute deadline for each of the agencies to demonstrate that they've met the requirements is the end of May, of March. And so we, I want to, we'll meet before then, but I want to sit down and go into detail about that. And, uh, and uh, but I, most of all, like to talk with you guys and you, whatever you want to talk about. But from my perspective is, how can we make some progress on police reform of consequence and uh, violence in our communities? And uh, I assume that's the primary thing we're going to talk about, but anything else is on the table. So thank you all. Do you want to say anything, Mr. Chairman? I just want to thank you, Mr. President and Mr. Vice President. Uh, for making this a priority today. Um, the death of Tyree Nichols um, is yet another example of why we do need action. Uh, but you've already led on the action that we've been able to take through executive order. Uh, we need your help uh, to make sure we can get the legislative actions uh, that are necessary to save lives and to make public safety the priority that it needs to be for all communities. So I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. Folks, we're going to get to work. Thank you for coming. In the White House Oval Office, President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris there as well. And you heard from Congressman Stephen Horsford, Democrat from Nevada, the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Headline at the Washington Post, police reform talks are back in Congress, but little hope for a deal. One of the reporters in that article is Leanne Caldwell, Washington Post live anchor and early 202 co-author who joins us now by phone. Thank you so much. It was just a couple of weeks ago that Tyree Nichols died after being beaten by Memphis, Tennessee police officers. And already lawmakers telling you they're pessimistic that a police reform package can pass? 
Yeah, there's not really a lot of hope up here on Capitol Hill that um, something regarding police reform can get through. Uh, We're in a divided government now. Um, Of course, a Democratic-controlled Senate, Republican-controlled House of Representatives. And last year, or last Congress, it passed the House, but wasn't able to get 60 votes in the Senate. They Two main people who were in charge of leading those negotiations, Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey, uh, Senator Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, they worked for months and they weren't able to finalize a deal um, and turn what they were talking to into legislation. And, you know, it was hard then, even with Democratic control of government, and it's going to be even harder now in a divided government. And there just seems to be that recognition and admission that those are the dynamics. Vice President Kamala Harris at the Tyree Nichols funeral yesterday called again on Congress to pass that bill that passed last Congress, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. What did that do and why were Senate Republicans opposed to it? So that was a pretty all-encompassing bill. It, it covered a lot of things. It banned no-knock warrants. Um, it um, provided um, money for increased training, including de-escalation training. Um, but the, one of the main things that was really controversial is this thing called qualified immunity. And currently, how the law stands is that police officers are not personally responsible for their actions on the job. The House bill that passed the House would have gotten rid of that and would have meant that police officers, in fact, could be sued. They could be held liable um, criminally and civilly for what they do um, on the job if they kill someone or they hurt someone. And so that was really problematic in the Senate. Um, And that was one of the several sticking points. And ultimately, though, um, Senator Booker and Senator Scott couldn't come to an agreement. And there was more than just the policy, though, as to why. Um, The reason in part is because of politics. Um, Crime was starting to go up again. Uh, Republicans were starting to attack Democrats as wanting to defund the police and uh, being weak on on, um, crime. And so it just made it really, really difficult uh, for anything to pass in the Senate. We're talking with Leanne Caldwell from The Washington Post The House now controlled by Republicans, and they have demonstrated they are willing to pass legislation, hold hearings on on issues, even if whatever they they come up with will have little chance of passing the Senate. So have they given some indication if they might move independently on police reform? So there's a possibility, except uh, there seems to be a prevailing position and opinion among many Republicans in the House that uh, a lot of these things cannot be solved at the federal level. Um, that's what some that's what Jim Jordan, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, uh, said on television last weekend. Um, he, he runs a committee that would have a lot of this jurisdiction. 
Um, and then someone like Representative Byron Donalds, um, one of the couple black Republicans in the House of Representatives, he I asked him about this yesterday and he said what happened to Tyree Nichols is abhorrent. But he also said that it's a matter of local jurisdiction, local police officers, not necessarily um, for Congress to address. So I just don't see there being the will of House Republicans to prioritize this. The officers in Memphis, Tennessee, involved in the Tyree Nichols death have been fired, charged with second-degree murder and other charges. Officials there said they wanted to move fast to satisfy the public's need for justice. So what happens if Congress and the president cannot move fast on a police reform bill? Then status quo remains. Um, It is, in fact, will be up to local law enforcement, um, local police departments to address um, crimes and issues like this. Um, And if Congress doesn't act, then, you know, there's not going to be more liability, more responsibility placed on police officers. Police officers will not get increased funding um, through the means that they were talking about regarding police reform. It just means status quo remains and um, local police departments are going to be responsible for how they train and respond to their officers. Any political fallout from the voters? That's a great question. Um, I don't know. An election is nearly two years away. A lot can happen between now and then. Um, But um, Republican voters, or excuse me, Democratic voters, um, base voters want something to happen, something to get done. Um, Senator Tim Scott, who says he's still talking with Cory Booker and others about potential police reform, he is perhaps uh, going to launch a run for president. And that can very well be playing into his decision because um, this is a much more difficult issue for Republican base voters um, who might be much more skeptical of police reform. Leanne Caldwell from the Washington Post, the Washington Post live anchor and co-author of the early 202. Her stories at WashingtonPost.com and on Twitter, it's at L.A. Caldwell, D.C. Thank you very much. Thank you. The National Prayer Breakfast held today in the Capitol Visitors Center. It's a bipartisan annual event attended by Republican and Democratic House members and senators and all presidents since Dwight Eisenhower in 1953. President Biden there saying we should all try to get along. He said, let's just sort of kind of join hands again a little bit. Let's start treating each other with respect. Doesn't mean we've got to agree, fight like hell, but let's treat each other with respect. The two co-chairs of the breakfast, members of Congress, Lucy McBath and Tim Wahlberg. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I was born in Illinois and raised on Chicago's South Side. I was born and raised in Chicago's South Side. We both love our Harleys. (laughs) Man, does she look good on that Harley. And we're great friends. Through God's reconciling work in both of our lives, we each have been blessed with a purpose greater than just being members of Congress. 
So many of you know my story of the journey that I took to Washington, of how I turned pain into progress through my work to prevent gun, gun violence. I've frequently, frequently been asked how I could continue to do this work in the face of the senseless tragedy that touched my life. Tragedy that continues to devastate families all across America. My answer is simple. I have faith. I have faith in the institution that we are humbled to serve in, in the tools of the government that we are empowered to wield, and the power that we have as a people to make change in our world, to make our future better, brighter, and stronger. And I have faith that our unity this morning can extend beyond these doors and shape the work that we have ahead of us. And that's been the foundation uh, of all of our planning that we've undertaken for the past number of months. This is a prayer breakfast that will have impact. Lucy and I stood just three, four weeks ago in Emancipation Hall, under the sign Emancipation Hall, with tourists all around, and I'm sure they wondered what we, we were, were doing. doing. <laughs> we were praying. We were praying for this day, that this day would be a day that would begin unique and powerful reconciliation in our lives, first of all, in your lives, in the lives of this country. A day of reconciliation to God, first of all, and then to each other. That's our prayer and the purpose of the 71st National Prayer Breakfast. So let's get on with it. Congresswoman Lucy McBath, Democrat from Georgia, and Congressman Tim Wahlberg, Republican from Michigan, co-chairs of the National Prayer Breakfast, held today in the U.S. Capitol Building Visitors Center. This year's program is being hosted by a new nonprofit, a National Prayer Breakfast Foundation. An NPR article explains that lawmakers now have taken it out of the hands of the secretive Christian evangelical group that had run it for decades. The International Foundation, also known as the Fellowship Foundation or The Family, a name popularized in recent years by a book by the same name and a 2000 Netflix, Netflix docuseries based on it. Former co-chair of The Breakfast, Senator Chris Coons, Democrat from Delaware, saying there are a lot of questions raised about the finances, about who was invited, about how it was structured. The Foundation Fellowship Foundation held its own event today in Washington at a hotel, watching the other event by video. Associated Press, Dateline, Manila, Philippines. The United States and the Philippines announced an expansion of America's military presence in the Southeast Asian country on Thursday, with U.S. forces granted access to four more military camps, effectively giving Washington new ground to ramp up deterrence against China. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin held a joint news conference in Manila with the Philippine Defense Minister. And we're pleased to announce today that President Marcos has approved four new EDCA locations. And that brings the total number of EDCA sites to nine. And I'm grateful to President Marcos for this decision. Today, Secretary Galvez and I also reaffirmed our mutual defense treaty commitments. And we'd note that the mutual defense treaty applies to armed attacks on either of our armed forces, public vessels, 
or aircraft anywhere in the South China Sea or the West Philippine Sea. We discussed concrete actions to address destabilizing activities in the waters surrounding the Philippines, including the West Philippine Sea. And we remain committed to strengthening our mutual capacities to resist armed attack. That's just part of our efforts to modernize our alliance. And these efforts are especially important as the People's Republic of China continues to advance its illegitimate claims in the West Philippine Sea. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in Manila today, joint news conference with the Philippine Defense Minister. He spoke about EDCA sites, that stands for Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. NBC News article with some context, the Philippines used to host two of the largest U.S. Navy and Air Force bases outside the American mainland. The bases were shut down in the early 1990s after the Philippine Senate rejected an extension. But American forces returned for large-scale combat exercises with Filipino troops under a 1999 Visiting Forces Agreement. And the Philippine Constitution prohibits the permanent basing of foreign troops and their involvement in local combat. Today is Groundhog Day. Congressman Glenn Thompson, Republican from Pennsylvania, whose district includes the town with one of the most famous Groundhog Day ceremonies, spoke on the House floor in Washington. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, today is a big day in the 15th Congressional District of Pennsylvania, specifically in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, as our most famous resident had his day in the sun, literally. To quote Bill Murray, it's Groundhog Day again. Early this morning, Punxsutawney Phil, our weather expert groundhog, saw a shadow. For those of you who know the old German legend, this means we are in for six more weeks of winter. Punxsutawney Phil has been forecasting the weather since the 1800s. Records gathering back to 1886 show that Phil has forecasted a longer winter 107 times and in early spring, just 20 times. Crowds gathered on Gobbler's Knob before sunrise today for the 137th celebration. Phil has proven himself a devoted prognosticator year after year and is a true icon in the world of weather forecasting. For these reasons and many more, Phil was inducted into the 2023 Meteorologist Hall of Fame by the Weather Discovery Center. So don't pack up your winter gear just yet. Phil says we have six more weeks. Happy Groundhog Day. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I yield back the balance of my time. Congressman Glenn Thompson, Republican from Pennsylvania, on the House floor in Washington. Ohio's official groundhog, Buckeye Chuck, in Marion, Ohio, also had the same prediction today. Saw a shadow, six more weeks of winter, but another groundhog, French Creek Freddy of French Creek, West Virginia, is predicting an early spring. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.